fight for the rights of others that you would like to exercise yourself. Mm. So, you know, for conservatives, that means don't freak out when a football player kneels, you know, disagree with them, but freak out if somebody tries to fire them. <laughs> um, just as you don't want to see a progressive inv invoking cancel culture on somebody that you agree with. Hello, dear friends. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm your host, Nick LaPara. And as always, we are bringing you the stories and wisdom of people who saw something wrong in the world and gave a damn about it. This week, no exception. We have a great show for you today. My guest is the incredible David French. Before I tell you more about who David is, for the 26 people out there who don't know who I'm talking about, let me tell you about Patreon. We keep this show relatively ad-free, but we do need to make a little money so we can cover the costs of production, recording, traveling, and fingers crossed someday, my time. I won't put a dollar amount on how much that costs per episode, but it's a lot. Whatever number you're thinking in your head, it's probably more. And we have a Patreon. It's a place where you can put your money where your mouth is, if you want. For the price of a damn cup of coffee each month, you can help make this podcast and platform more sustainable. Go to patreon.com slash let's give a damn right now to find out how you can join the team or hit me up on social media if you have any questions at all. I truly hope you'll join us. Okay, back to David French. I am a progressive. That's not a secret. You know it. I know it. And even though I try to keep the conversations on here pretty fair and balanced, some have accused me of inviting mostly progressive or progressive-leaning guests on the show. And that's probably the case. What you may not know is that I engage in dialogue with many conservatives online and offline and have lots of conservative friends, and I plan on making sure the podcast reflects that reality more and more in the future. So thanks for your patience. Today is one of those days. In this conversation, I have the absolute pleasure of having a conversation with someone I look up to and someone I think is really, really smart and balanced and fair, all of that. And David French lives just 40 minutes south of where I live in a beautiful home in Franklin, Tennessee. So we got to record this over a cup of mediocre coffee, don't hate me, David, in a room in his home that is basically a shrine to all things NBA. I didn't care that much for it because I'm not a big sports guy, but I know some of you would have loved it. David is a senior editor for The Dispatch. He just left a role as senior writer for National Review last month. He is a New York Times bestselling author, and his next book, The Great American Divorce, will be available for you to purchase in the next few months. He graduated from Harvard Law, and he is a former lecturer at Cornell Law. David is a former major in the United States Army Reserve, and in 2007, he deployed to Iraq and was awarded a Bronze Star. In this conversation, we talk about cancel culture, faith, gun control, how the left and right can work together for the good of our country, and even if that's possible, and so much more. Friends, I've teased you enough. Let's get right into it. Here's my conversation with David French. Let's go. It is an honor to have David French on the Let's Give a Damn podcast. David, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. It worked out that we live 40 minutes from each other, and so I got to jet down here, and we're in your home, and you're living actually in your your tribute to the NBA yes. TV room. Yes. Big NBA fan, Huge. I assume. Yes. Is it your favorite sport or? You know, NBA basketball is my favorite sport by miles. Uh, 
I love it. I follow it religiously. Um, the room, just to kind of give the setting, is full of these fathead posters of Kevin Durant back when he was in OKC on the OKC Thunder, dunking on a hapless Dallas Maverick. Got Kobe. Uh, we've got Jordan. We've got Magic and Larry. So it's, it's a little uh, bit of a shrine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. but it's a good. It's a good shrine. We were talking before the mics went on about how you know if I was, to, I'm not a big sports guy for a variety of reasons, but if I was to follow a sport right now, it would probably be basketball. Because I think some of the, yeah, some of the coaches, uh, I think there's a lot of leadership that I think should be exemplified through sports that really only exists in, it seems, in basketball right now. Well, you know, it's a very, it's a, it's a league that has given its players and its coaches and its front office folks a real leeway to pursue Basically, to say what they believe, uh, I was really disappointed, however, in the NBA's reaction to Daryl Morey's tweet in support of Hong Kong. Yes. Eventually, in the NBA got to the right, very clearly to the right answer, which was he has his free speech rights. The NBA resisted the People's Republic of China's demand that it fire Morey. It eventually did the right thing, but some of the players, I think their reaction was disappointing to me. But look, I mean, we're complicated people. Some of the players who I didn't feel like they'd reacted well uh, to China have done really, really amazing things in other areas of their life. So I don't have enough uh, political animosity in me to boycott a league uh, over a mistake. Yes, there you go. There you go. So I knew that I wanted to speak with you and introduce you to the Let's Give a Damn listeners. Um, I've been following you for a couple years now, um, and because of our, you know, beliefs and our worldviews, which are aligned in so many ways, but don't align in other ways. I see your tweets, I see your articles, and some like strike me really well. And then others, I'm like, ah, that, that, <laughs> that, that, that hurts a little bit. But I knew that I wanted to talk with you after seeing you, or I guess watching you in, in uh, debate with Sohrab Amari mm -hmm. um, over, well, it was a bunch of things, right? right. Ross uh, Douthat was moderating. Yeah. And there was a bunch of things that you were discussing, but the one the one that I was basically like cheering afterward was, you know, the whole thing about the drag queen story. Hour oh, came gosh. Up, yeah. Right. Right. And, you know, there's a lot of many, many conservatives that think that it's the beginning of the end. Right. That these drag queens are reading books to our kids <laughs> and they think it's that's the hill they're going to die on with everything that's going on. Uh, that seems like the hill that some people are willing to die on and really make that a huge deal. I think that's the literally the beginning of the end. It's what it sounded like from, you know, Amari, the way right. that he was talking about it. And the way that you responded uh, really, uh, it resonated with me. And so I then in turn, you know, we had a mutual friend. We got this thing together because I really think there's a lot of things that I can learn from you and that those listening can learn from you in, in terms of it is a very volatile time in yes. America. And we yeah. do have, we have listeners all over the world, 30, 40 countries, but most of them are here in the US. So it's a really hard time, no matter where you land on the spectrum of whether it's political or um, societal or whatever. And we need more of what you're offering, I think. And I'm trying to do so much of that in my life. And so let's get right into it. Yeah, let's do it. Before we get into so many of the bigger questions that I want to discuss today, give us your story uh, kind of highlight some of the people, places, things, uh, events that have made you who you are today so that we understand who we're getting today right. with all the beliefs, all the ideas. Yeah. So I grew up, I was born in Alabama, grew up across the South, um, but mostly in Kentucky. Um, I, my dad taught at a small Baptist college uh, called Georgetown College in a town, Georgetown, Kentucky, outside of Lexington. 
Now, if you go to Georgetown, it's a really prosperous community uh, in large part because of a huge Toyota plant uh, that makes, I think, basically every like Camry and Sienna sold in America. But that didn't exist when I was growing up. Uh, much more of a tobacco farming community. Uh, went to public schools, uh, K through 12, and then went to a Christian college in Nashville, Lipscomb University. I grew up Church of Christ. I, I have one of these super boring conversion stories and <laughs> that I don't remember being converted. I just only remember believing in Jesus. Um, so deeply part of who you were at that Yeah, point. I mean, yeah. I, I went to church every Sunday, was in church every Wednesday from, I mean just from the womb, <laughs> and uh, never had a period in my life where I left the church. Uh, so went to you know public schools in Kentucky, then went to a Christian college, and then uh, by a miracle got into Harvard Law School, and really for the first time went into a place where I was absolutely definitely in the religious and ideological minority, very firmly in the religious and ideological minority, as a conservative and as a Christian. And I actually had three of the best years of my life, even though it was in a very contentious time. I mm. mean, this this was the era of the booing and the hissing and the shouting down. And um, in class, like if you, if you raised conservative points in class, especially in the first couple of years, there was a, you know, you, people would scream, yell, try to drown you out sometimes, or hiss, boo. There were reprisals against conservatives that went well beyond that. I mean, sometimes if someone said something that they didn't like, they would try to get them fired from their future job, call like a judge and say, you can't, shouldn't hire this person. Or um, there were events like uh, taking uh, literal pictures of gay porn and then cutting out a, a, person, a, a person's head from the Facebook. Hmm. This was when we had an actual fa Facebook sure. yeah. and not yeah. an app. And pasting it on gay porn and putting that around the school. And uh, it was very, very vicious, very vicious Sounds environment. Like and uh, that was a formative experience for me about what it is like to hold on to your convictions in an environment where not everybody, but a lot of the people there are very, very hostile. Um, it's also a place where I've made friends that have lasted now most of my life uh, on left, right, and center. And so that was very formative experience for me. After that, I, I kind of did a conventional legal track. I did big firm law, uh, spent some time teaching. I taught for a couple of years at Cornell Law School, uh, went back to big firm law again, and then after a while transitioned out to do, I had a sort of a First Amendment practice on the side, religious liberty. Um, so by, you know, about 10 years out of law school, I had to make a choice. Am I going to be a big firm lawyer with a First Amendment hobby, or am I just going to go ahead and be a First Amendment lawyer? Hmm. And so then I jumped with both feet into the world of nonprofit law. I was a First Amendment litigator um, for a long time. Uh, then in 2006, uh, this so I'm at that point 37 years old, um, I just got the conviction that I couldn't keep supporting a war in Iraq, that I wasn't willing to fight myself. So... Um, Got myself in shape, <laughs> enlisted in the Army Reserve uh, as a JAG officer, went to basic officer basic course in May of 06, um, deployed to Iraq with the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment in um, very beginning of November of 07, served until uh, late September of 08 um, in Iraq in Diyala province during the surge, um, and then went back to my, you know, my First Amendment practice 
while also doing, you know, Army Reserve work. I did that for 10 years. Um, and then uh, in 2015, the month before Trump came down the escalator, I decided to, I'd been writing all along, uh, mainly about my cases at first, but then started writing more and more for National Review. And then in 2015, uh, the month before Trump came down the escalator, I jumped ship from uh, full-time practice of law and started working for National Review as a writer and was at National Review until last month when I joined uh, Jonah Goldberg and Steve Hayes at The Dispatch, Dispatch. which is a new uh, conservative media startup. Do you think that was, uh, I mean, wh what about the, t what do you think about the timing there? Because obviously you didn't know that Trump would come down the escalator. <laughs> I had no idea. Um, do you think that was sort of, you know, call it the universe, call it Providence? Like, do you think that was sort of like you were going to be needed during this time? And, you know, not that, I, I know you don't think so that highly of yourself, but your voice has been kind of for conservatives and centrists and those you know, open-minded progressives like myself. Like, <laughs> it's been a voice that we've kind of paid attention to. You didn't think that was... There's something there. You know, it's funny. Uh, it's in the care. It's in the be careful what you ask for kind of category hmm. because to describe myself as an amateur historian is a little bit generous. But I've always been a history buff, um, and you know, have always kind of wondered about would I be the kind of person that when my tribe, so to speak, was going off base. Would I find a way to go with them, or would I find, a, or would I stay true to the convictions that I had? And I always thought of, I frequently thought of the C.S. Lewis quote: "You know, courage is the form of every virtue at its testing mm -hmm. point." You don't know if you're kind until it's hard to be kind. You don't know if you're a loving person until it's hard to be loving. You don't know anything about yourself until it's hard. And I've always been the kind of person that I, where I was asking myself. I think I'm this way. <laughs> I think I have these convictions, but I don't know if I do until they're tested. And uh, w there are many ways it happens in life. I mean, we all face different kinds of tests. Um, but w a test for me was what do I do when I see this conservative movement that I long thought had a certain per set of values um, begin in an evangelical um, movement that, you know, I had represented many, many ministries in my career as a First Amendment lawyer, violating some of these values and principles that I believed and had ad advocated for for many years for the sake of this guy, for the, for Donald Trump. And, you know, it was, it was a moment in life where you just kind of had to make a choice. I mean, is, you know, do I believe in this these things? If I believe in these things, even when everyone's sort of zigging, I'm going to have to zag. Um, and so it was kind of uh, interesting that, that that challenge came up so quickly yeah. after I moved over into this world. So you, for it wasn't for very long, but you were, you had said publicly that you would vote for Trump. Yeah. Right? It didn't, again, it didn't last very long, right. I don't think, but you, so between that point, which was, when, when did you decide, was it when he came down the escalator? Did you, what, did you feel like you were, that it was a hard decision or? So the process kind of went like this. I mean, he came down the escalator and I freely admit like, you know, virtually every other, you know, writer, analyst in America, I did, there wasn't anything really to ponder because you didn't think that Trump was going to win, right? Also so, true. So August, September, October goes by, and he's 
staying on top of the polls. By October, November, I'm starting to think, okay, this is a, a very real thing. This is a very real thing. But at that point, I'd honestly not, he, he was sort of, he had said many outrageous things. Um, but sort of the full dimensions, I have not been a Trumpologist before this. You know, I'd watched The Apprentice. I, I just not paid attention sure. to the guy. And he said outrageous th things, and he was obviously rude, and he was obviously uh, substantially different from other politicians. And, you know, my position was basically, look, I'm not, he's my last choice in the primary, my absolute last choice. But I would reluctantly vote for him over Hillary Clinton. And then the more I began to see him and the more I learned about him, the more you saw sort of the inability to tell the truth, the more you learned about his personal life, the more you learned about his absence of any real conviction other than his own personal advancement. Mm -hmm. And then as the outrages piled up, I mean, one thing after another, that if they'd come out of the mouth of a Democrat, all of the, friend, all of the people that were supporting him would have been outraged. Would have been outraged. You know, there's sort of this thing you do on Twitter. It's like, if Obama had done, yep. you know, if any Democrat had done yep. some of these things. And I just reached the point where I, I said, you know, who, who would ever believe me again if I said integrity matters in politics, but vote for Trump? Um, honesty matters, but vote for Trump. I mean, and you began to see character matters, but vote for Trump. I, I was somebody who in 1998 firmly believed every syllable of the Southern Baptist Convention's statement on character and the importance of character in politicians. Every syllable of that thing. I would encourage people to Google it and read it and see if you disagree. And then consider that in light of the overwhelming white evangelical support for Trump. How are those two things consistent? And so it just reached a point where I can't remember if it was February. So in January, I believe, I said, yeah, I'm, I'll vote for him. And I can't remember if it's in February or early March where I definitely publicly said I'm never Trump. Yeah. And I, I think you brought up a good point because I can, although that wasn't my, I knew right from the beginning, I did not want to. I understand that. And I have many friends that were there mm -hmm. where they were like, you know, it's I'm definitely like not voting for Hillary, I think she'll do this, that, and the other. Right. And so whoever the nominee is, and it just so happened to look like it was going to be Trump, right? It wasn't a pro, like, we love Trump. It was just, yeah. that's the that's the better choice in this equation. But what we have now is we have, and we're not going to see the ramifications of this. I mean, we so many of us know them, but the leaders themselves aren't going to feel the ramifications until, you know, next year and the year after, once Trump is out, is I've sold my soul at this point, you can't, like you said, you got to the point where you're like, I can never say X, Y, or Z if I keep going with this. I can't right. say honesty, integrity, character, all of the fidelity, all these things matter if I continue supporting this man. And now there's tens of thousands of leaders, whether it's pastors, conservative thinkers, we've got, you know, the Falwells and the Jefferses and the, you know, the Grams, all these people that had some shred of you know, credibility, some lots of credibility. And now they've lost that. Like, they're not going to get it back. No, I mean, so look at, uh, here's a perfect example. And and look, when I criticize somebody, that's not saying that in other areas of their life, they haven't done wonderful and marvelous things. For so, sure. so let me take Franklin Graham, for example. I mean, if you look at what the work that Samaritan's Purse has done around the world, it's wonderful, you know? Yes. Praise God for it. Yep. But when he has been, his public-facing political witness has been annihilated. Um, 
1998, he wrote an op-ed that I agreed with in the Wall Street Journal that said, um, you know, if in essence, if Hillary, if Bill Clinton will lie to Hillary and Chelsea, who will he not lie to? Which is why it was relevant. Clinton's adultery. And and he was so right. I mean, Clinton, it turns out, would lie under oath. Um, and Clinton would try to obstruct justice. I mean, so Franklin Graham was right about that. If if you'll if a man will lie to his wife and his kids uh, about um, you know a matter so important as as fidelity to marriage vows, who will he not lie to? And then in in 2018, Franklin Graham says, I, I you know, flip flop man, I was wrong. And yeah. he goes, I, he, he to his credit, he acknowledged at least enough to know that he he was changing his mind. And he said, oh, that was all a mistake back then. What happened with Trump and Stormy Daniels is just between them. Well, and then in 2019, he comes out and he says, well, you know, it, it, he he tweets about Pete Buttigieg's same-sex marriage. Okay, hold on. <laughs> in 98, uh, it was relevant that Clinton committed adultery. In 2018, it's not relevant that Trump committed adultery. And in 2019, it's relevant that Pete Buttigieg is gay. Now, What's the only consistent theme there? The only consistent theme there is his partisanship. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that kind of thing is exactly what I'm talking about. And and my problem is the white evangelical church went from the community of people prior to 2016 that were most likely to say that character is important in a politician to the community of people least likely to say that. And if that's the case, if that's what's happening, who's going to listen to, say, Pastor Jeffries or some of these other folks or Falwell Jr. Mm -hmm. when they go after a Democrat about adultery or if they go after a Democrat about lying or if they go after, if only thing that matters is policy, if that's it, if that's it, I don't want to hear about it anymore. I don't want to hear about this person lied or this person uh, had this scandal. Um, if it's all just transactional, be transactional, but that's not what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. No, very, very true. And your conservative voice that I want have been listening to, want to keep listening to, and again, that's what kind of why I had you on to point people toward you, because you're in that sweet spot where you do hold to conservative values, values that some that probably I don't hold to, but you, you act with integrity. You really believe them. You're not willing to flip-flop. Not that you're perfect. I'm not trying to right, take that picture. I was going to say, but, let's, let's slow down but a little it, bit. It, we, <laughs> have, we have a track record of at least there being consistency there where I can say, I'm going to consistently agree, disagree with David here and disagree with David elsewhere. And so that's the voice that I want to engage with on a few topics today. Sure. So the latter part of this conversation, I want to spend on how can we left and right, conservative, liberal, what, however you want to name those two camps, how can we make the world a better place together? But that's to come. I want okay. to first address kind of a few different kind of bigger hot button issues that are in the news today sure. and get your perspective sure. on them. Because these are things that I care about, things that our listeners care about. I have different guests on bringing different points of views. Mm -hmm. So the first one is gun control. Uh-huh. Uh, just re just recently, maybe in the last couple of days, you uh, retweeted a story about a pregnant woman, which is kind of a badass story. I mean, yeah. just, just in its own right, like this, you know, this pregnant woman, her, there's an intruder beating her husband up, right? And mm -hmm. then she gets one of his, you know, weapons, his gun, and mm -hmm. 
hurts hurts or kills the intruder. I can't remember. I think it was two intruders and two maybe intruders. Gets killed. I think shoots shoots both. Maybe kills both. I, I'm, okay. I can't remember exactly. But part of the part of the the one that you retweeted was because CNN had said that it was an automatic weapon and it wasn't. It was right. a AR-15, right? right? Semi-automatic. Yes. And so let's talk about gun control. Let's talk about. Um, cause that is a main, I mean, Beto's out now. So that conversation <laughs> might, um, might not be as, I mean, but every other democratic candidate's going to talk about it in some right. way. That was just Beto's like thing. So we are the only, uh, modern industrialized country that has the kind of like firepower that we have. If my numbers are correct, we've got 120 guns for every hundred people in America, but only 30% of Americans own guns. So that means that a hundred and something million Americans have a lot of guns. They each have multiple guns. Right. Like I have multiple guns. Sure. <laughs> and I know that, you know, I have tons, I, I actually have a, a an upcoming kind of date with one of my buddies. He has a lot of guns. He loves guns. And he's like, I know you don't love guns. And I've, you know, we don't, I don't have one. I'll never own one. And those are just my, those are my convictions. But he's like, come over. I want to show you like, how the guns work. Like, let's talk through like, where did right. this gun come from? And I'm like, hell yeah, we're going to like, I'll, I'll bring a film guy out there and we'll film this thing. Cause it's a, it's a relevant conversation. Yeah. And so there are some of us, like you said, you've got multiple guns in this home where we are right now. I don't own any, won't own any, but I think the bigger question that I want to get to is like, why do you think we, we need guns like AR-15s and, and why do we need, what do you think's behind this American obsession with, because I think it is an obsession. Yeah. I think there is whether I don't know what it, when it comes from movies or I don't know where it comes from. But like other countries have had wars. It's not because we've been in wars. Like Germany's had wars, and Germany does not think the same way that we do about <laughs> guns. And you can pick your different countries. And so, go for it. Like yeah. Well, other countries have very different histories from the United States. Uh, is for one thing. I mean, so you know, you're talking about a country that was a. Uh, a settler, a frontier settler community um, that was founded in a revolution, a revolution that was launched by um, a series of battles fought between British regulars and citizen militia. Um, there's a great, great book. I think I just started Siri. That's um, fine. She's just stop listening. Siri. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a great book Rick Atkinson uh, wrote that I'm reading right now about the first three years of the American Revolution. And he, more vividly than almost anyone that I know, um, described what the Massachusetts, the militia culture was in Massachusetts and how that played a role in, in the, the launch, the start of the revolution. And so you have, you know, this, a nation in which, um, you know, you have a frontier culture, you have a revolutionary culture, you have westward expansion. You have a, a a very different history from some of the big, the developed countries in the in in Europe, and so guns have been a part of American life for a really long time. And there's been some attempts at revisionist history scholarship to try to argue that they were less prominent in the past. That's mainly been thoroughly debunked. So you're you come into a fully mature culture in which guns have been a part of it. Um, from before the founding, so you're 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 starting from a completely different place, okay, just completely different. Now the other thing is, so against that backdrop, the way I've, I have phrased it is, every single one of us has 
a right of self-defense, a right to defend ourselves from aggression and right to defend our families from aggression. And what's relevant to the modern gun control debate is for that right of self-defense to be meaningful, it has to be effective. So for example, you could say uh, and sort of agree with me in theory and say, yeah, I, I think if an intruder comes into your home, you have a right to defend yourself against the intruder, and that could include a bait, that could be a baseball bat, that could be a knife, that could be mace, but it shouldn't be a gun. When I, my argument would be, well, that is not effective self-defense if the intruder is foreseeably armed with a gun. Um, and so our right of self-defense should be a right of self-defense against foreseeable threats. Um, and in that circumstance, that's, you know, that to me gets to the heart of the gun control debate. What is a foreseeable threat? A foreseeable threat is a, uh, a semi-automatic pistol with a standard capacity magazine. That's a foreseeable threat. Well, should, I should be able to possess a very similar kind of weapon to that. Um, and so it really does get down to some of this sort of basic human right of self-defense in the culture in which we live. Um, and, and also, you go back to the Second Amendment, there are reasons for the Second Amendment even above and beyond the right of self-defense. Reasons for the Second Amendment are rooted in the American Revolution itself, that a final, absolute last-ditch bulwark against tyranny is an armed citizenry. And again, an armed citizenry cannot be an effective bulwark against tyranny if it's armed with just, you know, <laughs> kitchen knives or hatchets or pitchforks. So that's essentially the this you know it's rooted in American history. It's rooted in American constitutional tradition. It's rooted in the inherent right of self-defense that every human being has. Okay, wonderful. So part of the argument that you just laid out, which it, it is very it is very logical and it makes sense to me. That all makes sense to me. What doesn't make sense is we're not surviving anymore. Like you don't have to go out and kill something, right? On the one hand, if, if you have your guns for hunting, like you, we mm. don't have to do that anymore. We have different ways of being fed. Additionally, like the, the, the one thing that I always think about is, you know, with the, in the self-defense conversation is there are so many guns out there in about that's the, 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 the fact that we have so many guns is why we even need the guns to defend, to defend ourselves from other people that, have guns, right? So like do do the do the people in the UK or Germany or Japan or New Zealand do they not have the right to defend themselves or are Americans just more evil that they want to like <laughs> kill well, again a very so you have a very history didn't begin in 2019. Sure. Uh and so the America that exists now is the product of the America that's existed since the the colonies and the development of a of a nation for, you know, 400 plus years. And from, you know, from the initial settlements till now, and that means that it has developed very differently from the other countries. Mm -hmm. And we have, as you said, 120 firearms for every 100 people. Yep. There's 400 million, by some estimates, or more firearms in the United States. Um, that's where we are. That's the reality of where we are. Yep. And, and so when I talk about self-defense, yeah, it's self-defense against a threat involving firearms. And, and... Um, that may not be the case on a day-to-day -day basis in New Zealand, but it is absolutely the case in the United States of America. And now, if we had, and, and what we have tried to do, or implement gun reforms and gun laws mm -hmm. that are designed to keep guns out of the hands of criminals, background check laws, for example, um, laws that prohibit possession by people who are mentally un, uh, mm -hmm. unfit or mm -hmm. have been diagnosed as dangerously mentally ill, 
um, people who have committed violent felonies or domestic violence. We try to keep guns out of the hands of those individuals. And, and that kind of targeted gun control that says person A, there is reason to believe that person A uh, is unfit to possess a firearm. Huge consensus in the United States that person A should not have that firearm. Yeah. And, and in fact, the vast bulk of gun crime in this country comes from those people that we have an immense amount of consensus should not have the gun in the first place. And usually when they're committing a gun crime, they're a prohibited possessor as they commit it. Um, my issue with gun control is a lot of gun control, what it actually does is it limits the ability of a person who is not a threat and does, is irrelevant to the person who is a threat. And so what, what, this is one of my first questions that I will ask somebody if they propose a gun control, if they pro make a gun hmm. control proposal. How, I get how it will limit me. How does it limit the person who's the foreseeable threat? That's, that's my question. So I'll give you an example of a gun control proposal that I have supported, uh, and it's called a red flag law. If it's properly drafted, I don't endorse all of them, but the virtue of a red flag law is that it says, okay, here is evidence that person A has either issued threats or made other statements indicating violent intent. And we're, I'm going to present that admissible evidence in court and obtain an order that will temporarily um, relieve that person of their firearms. Mm. That's a targeted gun control proposal that is based on due process and the actual conduct of the individual. And it happens to dovetail with uh, warning signs that we've seen from a number of mass shooters have made these red, have sort of flown these red flags and the law has been inadequate to address the obvious warning signs that existed. And so in that circumstance, I am, I support it. It's got due process attached mm -hmm. to it. It's targeted at behavior. Uh, and it is not limiting people who have given no indicia of being a risk at all. And so, so that's one of my consistent questions regarding gun control. If you, if you're going to propose, we know generally how gun violence occurs in this country. We sure. know who does it. We know how they get their weapons. If you're going to propose something that's going to target who does it and how they get their weapons, I am all ears. Sure. If you're going to pass something that, from my perspective, seems to limit me and be irrelevant to the person, the people who actually commit the gun crime, I'm much more skeptical of that. Fair enough. No, that's super helpful. I mean, we could obviously talk about this sure. for a long time, but that's super helpful to hear that there are versions of, you know, there are gun control proposals that you're all for. That that seems reasonable to me. Again, we there's a two hours we could talk about yeah. just the, the psychology. Like to me, like my dad had a lot of guns growing up. We traveled a ton as a family. We were missionaries. And so we did a lot of traveling here in the U.S. And he, he always brought, like we'd we'd go out and go shooting everywhere we went, yeah. you know, he, we'd take our guns with us and find a place to go shooting. And, and back then I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that. Like, you know, you're, you got this powerful thing and there's a target and you hit it. And that was very enjoyable. But as I've grown up and I have a different perspective, I grew up in Guatemala during the years that the civil war there was ending late nineties, late 1990s. And it was so violent. I mean, I've seen people get murdered right in front of me. Yeah. Um, and so it was then I think that things started to change 
um, for me, mm-hmm. where I was like, I don't want anything to do with this. And, you know, then, you know, as I've grown and matured, my theology has changed how I think about, you know, peace and war and all of those things. So yeah, I, I want to continue dialoguing with people that have different perspectives. That seems fair to me. Again, it's not, you know, not the perspective I would take right. on gun control. But I, I think that's a fair, that's a very fair way to look at it because I think that is part of what you described is exactly what I've heard, which is how do I know? Like you're talking about, you know, Beto, I think he went too far in so many of the things yeah. that he said where it was like, hell yeah, we're going to come take your guns. And it's like, okay, I, again, I don't see the need for so many guns, but your plan, what you just said is only going to incite, you're going to piss off so many people because they're thinking you've laid out no plans for how the bad guys are not going to have right. guns. You're just going to come take mine. What the hell, dude? Yeah. Like, well, and you know, one of the things is really unfortunate about our modern political era is that if you're, if you have a public voice in politics now, there's a good chance that you will have encountered threats. And sure. so, um, especially since the rise of Trump, uh, my family has encountered threats. And so, you know, one of the things you become keenly aware of when people have, have you know, threatened even your children is, you know, if I call 911, there's a lag time. There's a lag yeah. time. Even if a cop is right down the street, which they're not, there's a lag time. And But the necessity to defend myself and my family is immediate. And and what are the weapons that I would be? Now, I've had more training than most people because of my military service. Um, which, which weapons would I be most comfortable in using where I will be accurate, uh, where I will be where I won't be fumbling around mm-hmm. in panic. <laughs> uh, you know, those are questions you ask yourself. And, you know, one of the things that I don't want is Beto weighing in on that decision. Because um, he just, pretty obvious to me, doesn't know what he's talking about. And so, um, you know, those, those are some of the things and the factors that come into your mind. Uh, but, you know, again, I think, I so I think two things. One, look, I think people, gun-owning members of the gun-owning public have to reckon with and have to acknowledge and understand that gun crime in this country is an outlier from the rest of the developed world. Mm -hmm. It is. And we need to be part of, proactively part of the solution to that, separate and apart from having a, a focus only on, well, whatever you do, don't, you know, my focus is on protecting the Second Amendment. We have to have a holistic approach where we're saying, no, we also need to be a part of the overall solution to gun violence in this country. And that involves a a lot of different factors, a lot of different factors. So we need to put forward to the American public the reality that many of us are deeply concerned. Most of us are deeply concerned with gun violence and want to do something about it, that our single focus in life is not on, don't take my guns. You know, at the same time, I... I would really want more people who are support restrictions on gun rights to realize that this gun owning community, by and large, the vast majority of them are very concerned with gun violence and want to see it reduced and have ideas as to how to reduce it. And also, I want them, just as gun owners should grapple with the fact that gun violence in America is an outlier compared to other developed countries, grapple with the fact that even as more guns are in American life, the gun crime rates have fallen dramatically from their highs, dramatically. Hmm. I mean, if you look at the, at the 
arc of since the worst days in the early, you know, late 80s, early 90s, the fall has been precipitous in gun crime. Yeah. And so we've been doing things that have been working even as uh, Americans have bought more weapons, even as gun control laws have been liberalized. So I often don't see people, my friends on the left, really grappling with that. I also think it's important what you've described multiple times, you know, you're talking about the history of this country, which I don't fully understand. I, I like history as well, but I've studied more world history than American history, to be honest. And is that things are not going to change. Progressives, by the nature of even the, it's in the name, like we want things to progress sometimes quicker than is even humanly possible or, <laughs> right. super, or supernaturally possible. Yeah. And so we see a problem, whether mm -hmm. it's gun control or the climate or whatever it is. Th these are very real things. Like I... I hate that my four-year-old son that just started going to pre-K has to do a has to do not a fire drill his first week of school, not any other drill, but an active shooter drill at his school. And that's every kid. Like I hate that. But they shouldn't be doing that in my view, but go ahead. <laughs> they, sure. No, no, totally. Scaring these no, kids. totally. Yeah. It, it, well, and the thing, and I would it's funny you brought that up. I was just thinking about that because it's it's it sucks that that's even a reality that we have to, that our school administrators and our, our school system has to think about that. But you're so right that, I mean, you've probably been in a chaotic situation before. No one is remembering what they learned in that drill. No. So no one, zero. Especially like, not a four-year-old. Especially yeah. not a four-year-old or a five or six or seven-year-old. They're mm -hmm. just, they're just scared as hell. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to, whatever they're trying yeah. to do in that situation. Nobody's remembering what to do. Every It's very chaotic. And so, as you just pointed out, we're just scaring people mm -hmm. and they're just walking in school every day. And to be honest, I, as a parent with my little kids, I pray over them every day as they go to school, just saying, God protect them. Yeah. Like, I hope nothing does happen there. And the numbers point to, you know, it's not going to happen at their school ever, right? Yeah. It's just, there are school shootings happening and it sucks and we need to stop them. But statistically, it won't happen at my kid's school because there are tens of thousands of school yeah. that will never be affected by this. Thank God. Yeah. You know? But yeah, I think as progress progressives, we want things to change too quickly. Instead of coming to the table with, you know, conservative minds and and you know, th thinkers like you to say, how can we we can do something that benefits everyone? That is something that we're all willing to come to the table about, right? Yeah. Instead of saying, no, no, you suck. You, you don't want it as, as quickly as I do, and so we're going to go do it on our own. And so we have these standoffs, whether it's in Congress or the House or from the presidential level or just people on a couch saying, F you, we're not going to do this. Well, and part of the problem is, is because, and this is a, a product of the increased cocooning of American society, is we tend to dialogue within like-minded communities, which reinforce our beliefs and sure. reinforce all of our priors. And so- it isn't just that you disagree, that I disagree with you or you disagree with me. If I'm thinking through a complex social problem, I'm looking at somebody and I'm thinking, not only do you disagree with me, you disagree with my obviously correct Very obviously solution. Correct. Very yeah. obviously that every intelligent person I know- You don't see it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, come on. And and so this is, this is why we move from saying, I disagree with you, and into saying- you're a bad person, or you're acting in bad faith, or maybe the most charitable we often get is you're just ignorant. Let me educate you. Mm -hmm. And because we are so convinced, often in our own arrogance, that our solution for an extraordinarily complex problem 
is the obvious not only the correct solution it's the obviously correct solution and your failure to grasp that is evidence of your of mm. profound moral failing on your part and and this is this is i mean that method of dialogue is like basically the what the business model of twitter <laughs> yep it fuels it every day it's a yeah. high, high octane gasoline for yeah. twitter is that sort of thinking and we yeah, we've lost um we have lost the ability to give people the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. To ask questions, to not assume right off the bat that this person is shitty and I don't want anything to do with them. Because they, whether it's, whether we're talking about pro-life, pro-choice, whether we're talking about gun control or second amendment, whether we're talking about climate crisis or it doesn't exist, it doesn't matter what conversation we no longer have. And that, you know, I, I we talked before the mics went on, like I, I did this article for RNS up right after the, um, the Ellen uh, George W. Bush yeah, yeah, yeah. debacle, right? And I, I, my my friend is the editor in chief there, and she saw this tweet where I just said, I just plainly stated, which I think is true still today, is that conservatives are better at being friends with people they don't they don't agree with. <laughs> I think that's true. Not not every conservative, not right. every faction of conservatism. Just like I don't believe that about all progressives, but I think I know more of my conservative friends that have stuck with me through this through just different transitions in my life. And mm -hmm. I'm very vocal on social media and in my personal life about what I believe and what I stand for. Mm -hmm. I have way more conservative friends that have stuck with me than I do liberal friends that have said, that have called me all sorts of crazy shit and like said, you're, you're <laughs> not, you're not a real one. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. not part of us. Yeah. Go, go away. And funny enough, and it's not funny, it's real. When I wrote that article, the, the only people with maybe the exception of one, the only people that I got pushback from in kind of saying, so, uh, progressives, take a step back, um, be stop being so angry all the time, listen more, have less, have fewer conversations on social media, more around your dining room table. I gave all these, like this advice after the whole Ellen thing and all the pushback I got was from progressives <laughs> saying, no, 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 but they, but they, this and Trump that and this and that. I'm like, guys, you're proving my point right yeah, now. Yeah. You're just so angry that I'm trying to bring a charitable view to all of this. Not to even say that I agree with so much of what's on the other side, but what happened when Ellen sat next to Bush at a, at a Cowboys game, progressives went crazy and conservatives said, wow, we need more of that. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, I think that, so I, I would have completely agreed with you five years ago, five years ago, I would have said, Absolutely, in my experience, and part of it is because conservatives have long had to inhabit a world, uh, unless they have really walled themselves off into conservative institutions where your entertainment, your education is going to be in a largely progressive sure. world. And so they've learned to, for a long time, learn to understand and appreciate and admire people on the other side of the spectrum hmm. who were artists or entertainers or athletes or whatever that they liked on other grounds. And, but that's changing, that's changing. And, and I would hmm. say this, I would say that the reason why there was universal conservative applause for Ellen um, meeting with George W. Bush was because the, the first wave of attacks came from the left against Ellen. Uh. If there had been people who had attacked Bush for meeting with Ellen, that you would have seen a different dynamic because the sure. the real i think the fundamental reality of politics now and increasingly of culture is negative polarization 
And negative polarization essentially means I'm not for my side because I love its ideas, but because I hate the other side. And so often um, we, so when the, one of the hallmarks of negative polarization is you're inherently and reactive as opposed to principled. And so um, if you hate the other, hate George W. Bush, by hating George W. Bush, you're going to also hate anyone or be angry at somebody who, who embraces him or shows kindness to him or is friendly to him. That's a classic negative polarization move, even though in an abstract, you might answer a question, do you think more liberals and conservatives should have relationships? In the abstract, you might say yes. But in the negative polarization world, when you see it in the concrete, you don't like it. Um, and so what I have seen in, is a lot of conservatives adopting the exact be same behaviors that they have decried on the left. Um, classic example is how conservatives have for a long time been angry at cancel culture mm -hmm. and snowflakery. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'll look at these snowflake college students. They can't handle a little, a little disagreement. Well, now there's this whole sort of side hustle in conservatism of finding bad tweets or bad statements by professors. Oh, yeah. Yep elevating them and trying to get them fired. There was a dean at Alabama, University yep. of Alabama, who had some had some controversial tweets from before his he assumed his position. And it was elevated and he was fired. And that's conduct that if you had rewound the clock five years ago, conservatives by and large would say, oh, I'm just against cancel culture. I'm just against it. And then you fast forward a few years and they're all in on all it. All in. All in on it. So. I agree with you. I do think there is an element of the woke, illiberal left that really needs to chill out. Yeah. But there is an emerging illiberal right that operates in its own world, of its own version of political correctness, and those guys are mimicking all of that behavior, the worst behavior on the left. And it's sort of horseshoe theory. It's that at the extremes, the two sides get closer together. And we're seeing a lot of that now. Yeah. And I agree with you. One of the reasons I didn't, in that tweet, in the article, I didn't really talk about conservatives because I'm not one. And right. I, you know, and I don't think it, 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 I would have gotten a lot more backlash. I think had I, had I made more statements like the ones you're making, which you should be able to make them because you are, you know, more on the conservative side, I would have gotten more of that uh, had I made a firm, you know, statements about conservatives and I wanted to stay away from that and I got shit for it. I mean, I did yeah, from, of course. because I, because they were like, you didn't speak up enough. And I'm like, don't worry, I have plenty to say yeah. and I've got plenty of stories and I've got, yeah, plenty of evidence that that is very much alive and well in that, that world as well. But that's not my, I want to talk to me. I want to talk to us right now and say, let's do our part to, meet everyone, not halfway, but meet everyone halfway and bring people together around a table to have discussions. If they want to comply and do the same thing, wonderful. Uh, but I, I want to talk to us instead of always, again, because we're it's so much easier to say as a progressive, like, oh, conservatives this, not too many people saying, so much so that somebody from, and I won't mention who, but somebody from Ellen's team high up, like reached out yeah. and just said like, that was we need and that person is very liberal yeah and was like we need more of that to well, happen and, and you raise a good point because the bottom line is people on the left are not typically all that concerned about criticism from the right so if a conservative says hey campus liberals you're doing this wrong 
the folks that you're aiming your fire at often relish your opposition. Sure, definitely. You know, it's like a resume point, you know, that, oh, I, I was subject to three scathing articles in National Review. It's in it's in Twitter bios, like block or blocked by Trump or whatever. Yeah. Like yeah, they, yeah. they wear it as a badge of honor. Oh, right. So the only way, especially in this atmosphere of negative polarization, to try to maintain a degree of humanity and civility is for the sides to self-police. But negative polarization makes that even harder because sure. then what happens is you say, well, if you're critiquing your own team, you're getting giving aid and comfort to the enemy. And oh, by the way, what about X, Y, and Z that the other side did? Why aren't you talking about that? And I can say, well, I've talked about that. We'll talk more about it. Yep. You know? It's never enough. And but you know, there are important voices who are that are raised on the right and on the left that are really calling out the illiberal elements of their own side. I mean, Obama did it. Just a couple of days other, ago. Yeah, yeah, at the Obama summit, yeah. Yeah, there's this group called Heterodox Academy, which is several thousand academics, and they are mainly on the left, and they are calling for increased free speech on campus, increased tolerance of dissenting views on campus. And those are thousands of academics, again, mainly on the left, talking mainly to the left. And, you know, on the right, there is, as everyone knows, an enormous amount of disagreement about how we should be approaching the culture, how we should be approaching politics. And, you know, for now, the Trumpist side of that argument has prevailed, but I don't happen to think that that battle is over. Yeah. I mean, even with the, the college campus thing, like we're, we're all left and right, very bad at both end. We want oh, yeah, either yeah. or, right? And so it, in, in like, there are conservative voices that I don't agree with at all. I agree with so much of who you are, right? For example, but so, but we go, we go, all the way, we say, like, I don't want to hear from Milo Yiannopoulos. Like, there's <laughs> nothing that I want to hear from him, but I want to hear from Ben Shapiro. Right. Right? Like, th that's a voice that I don't agree with, but he's proven to be smart. You know, he says, he might say some, you know, some foolish things here and there, but I want to hear from him. But w because we lack the ability to do both and, we say, no Milo, no Ben, no, <laughs> name, name your person. Instead of saying, no, there are, we do have to, we need, especially on on college campuses, these places where we're forming our minds and ideas and sharpening each other, hopefully, we need to hear from the Ben Shapiros and say, this is a very like well-formed, well-thought-out idea. Let's wrestle with it. Right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we need to hear from challenging people who challenge us and maybe, you know, and people who can even infuriate us. But we have this sort of notion that says, okay, well, let me just depersonalize it for a minute. Sure. Let's say I don't want fascists on my campus. Well, what's a fascist? What we find out is if there's broad consensus around not having a fascist on campus, there then becomes an, an incentive to expand the definition of fascism. Of course. And so you end up having these absurd things thrown at Ben Shapiro, for example. He's called alt-right. Ben is called alt-right when he was the number one target of anti-Semitic attacks by the alt-right in the 2016 election. And he's called alt-right because people have broad consensus. Well, we don't, we want to hear disagreement, but we don't want the alt-right. Well, then those who want to suppress disagreement try to expand that definition to even encompass a target of the alt-right. So that's one of the things we have to watch is, you know, we have these creeping and expanding definitions of dehumanizing speech or hate speech or fascism or the alt-right 
to, you know, sometimes the definitions expand so much that they're encompassing mainstream conservatism. And there might be some listeners who will be sitting here saying, yeah, the mainstream conservatism is fascism. But it's not. I mean, these are words with a meaning. And we, we see this on the right all the time, all the time. Uh, in my debate with Sorab Omari, he talked about uh, essentially arguing that, like, you know, he even brought up this word, the Colosseum, in connection mm-hmm. with Bernie Sanders. Yep, yep. Okay. I remember that. Now, for those who, you know, because Bernie has done some things like grilling nominees uh, about their Christian faith that were improper, that was wrong. But the Colosseum was not about bringing Christians under oath in a Senate hearing and asking them about their faith. Sure. It was about eating them alive. Yeah. And when we expand these wor- the definition of these words, what we end up doing is we catastrophize our politics. We, we exaggerate the stakes. Um, so instead of saying, I'm against a Republican who is wrong, I'm saying, I'm against fascism. Wow. <laughs> Well, if you're fighting against fascism, well, then don't the ends justify the means? Or if you're on, you know, that 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 wing, the illiberal right, I'm not just defending against some legal changes that I don't like. I'm defending against the Colosseum. Yeah. Well, if you're defending against it's the Colosseum, then all bets are off. Yep. You know. Yeah. Okay. Let's um, let's wrap this up with two questions, okay. shorter answers on both, because I want to respect your time. But these are two that I think will give us a good, they'll put a nice little bow on top of this. And maybe we'll do this again some other time <laughs> to get all the rest of it out. One is, as a conservative thinker, what is one thing that progressives or liberals get right that conservatives don't? The thing that I think that conservatives have to grapple with is that Progressive critics, and now they've gone too far with this sometimes, but progressive critics who said that there is a a dark racial edge to right-wing populism were correct, Um, especially when it's Southern populism. Southern populism has never been free of a dark racial edge. And fortunately, it's it's not as dark as it was in 1960. Sure, of course. Uh, by Thankfully. A, a big, yeah. by a big margin, but it's still there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that there has become and there has been an element of white identity politics that has infected uh, GOP, mod, the modern incarnation of GOP populism. Yeah. And I remember a time in 2016 where I was participating in a conversation with some young conservative writers, and one of them said, I've just realized that progressives, many progressives were right uh, when they were warning about some of the racial elements of GOP populism. Mm. So that's one that I think- That's um, good. That's one that I think conservatives need to grapple with. Got it. Okay, we are, you and I are walking into an elevator together. I'm getting off in five floors, and I ask you, it's 2019, it's almost over. Right. We're heading into 2020, an increasingly volatile, divisive time in our history. How do we, left, right, liberal, conservative, people on both, how do we as Americans (laughs) make it through this next year in, in real life and on social media? Well, I mean, my gosh, um, 
you know, for Christians, I would say, remember Micah 6, 8. Micah 6, 8, what does the Lord require of you, O man? What is good? It's to act justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly before the Lord your God. So we got the act justly part down or seek justice part of it down. We can call out injustice mm -hmm. yep. and we can get angry about it, but we don't love mercy very much. Mm -mm. And we're a lot of times abs totally absent of humility. And those three things have to work together. You're seeking justice, but as you seek justice, you're loving the individual on the other side, and you're cognizant of your own failings. You know, as Scripture says, we see through a glass darkly. We know in part we are inherently flawed. Even sometimes we can feel completely sure that we know something, only mm. to learn sometime later that we're off base in one or more material ways. And so for a Christian, I think of that Micah 6, 8 construct all yeah. the time. And that's, for people of faith, that's just going to get us through if we can remember it. And if you're a person without faith, I, I still think of sort of what I would call a legal corollary to the golden rule as a way to heal some of the divides in this country. Fight for the rights of others that you would like to exercise yourself. Mm. So, you know, for conservatives, that means don't freak out when a football player kneels, you know, disagree with them, but freak out if somebody tries to fire them. <laughs> um, just as you don't want to see a progressive in, invoking cancel culture on somebody that you agree with. Yep. Uh, so fight for the rights of others you would like to exercise yourself. And then, and the last thing on voting I really think if people imposed a two-part test on candidates where both parts of the test had to be passed hmm. for you to vote, it would improve our public life immensely. One of them is vote for the person who shares your political policy goals. That's the easy part for everybody. They'll do that, but here's the hard part. Vote for people who have a character who, that is commensurate with the office. So you have to have both. You have to have a... Now, not perfect. Nobody's perfect. No one is. And nobody perfectly follows any of our political platforms. But within a reasonable margin of error, vote only for people who have character, a level of character commensurate with the requirements of the office and who share your political values. And that implements a level of quality control. Whereas right now, what we have is a situation where you know, especially saying congressional races or whatever, only about 8% of the voting population on either side votes in a primary. It's wild. And they will serve up a turd sandwich and then say, binary choice. You know, one of the most heartening things of the last four years was when the voters of Alabama said no to Roy Moore. Yep. Enough people either voted against him or stayed home, and hundreds of thousands of Alabamians had to stay home, Republicans had to stay home for... Doug Jones to, to win that thing, to say, no, not that guy. Mm. So, you know, Micah 6-8, impose a character test on politicians. I love that. And um, fight for the rights of others that you would like to exercise yourself. And I think we got a chance. It's all fantastic. David French, thanks for joining us today. This was super awesome. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Friends, I hope this conversation has helped you as much as it helped me. If you take anything from this chat, it's the importance of not living in a bubble. If you don't have any friends that you disagree with on a number of huge issues, you're not truly living. I mean that. Commit to sharing a meal and or some drinks very soon 
with a deeply conservative friend if you're progressive or a deeply progressive friend if you're conservative. Try it. Let me know how it goes. And if you have any questions or thoughts about this conversation, you can find me anywhere on the socials at Nick Lapara or at Let's Give a Damn. And make sure to follow David on Twitter at David French. He's a wonderful follow. He will challenge you and he even may piss you off. I hope he does. And that's okay. We'll all learn from it. This show was created by me, edited by Chad Snavely, and the music is by our friend Propaganda. Share this episode with people you like or people you don't like. Just make sure you share it. We put a lot of time and love into these podcast episodes, and we want to get them to as many damn givers as possible. Just a reminder that it will take you less than 15 seconds to hit the share button in your podcast app, copy the link, send it to a friend right now. Friends, I can't wait to spend time with you next week. I love you. Peace. Peace.